Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, as we've been five weeks away, and the church has been gracious to give me five weeks out of the pulpit to be with our new little girl. Uh, Let's pray a quick little prayer for me. I have uh, the mixed feelings this whole time of, man, I can't wait to get back in the pulpit. Now it's like, man, have I forgotten how to even do this uh, after five weeks. So please pray for me. But today we're ending Matthew chapter 13. And as we've already alluded to, just having in our mind the trajectory of this book right now is Christ continued rejection, which will ultimately end in His crucifixion. And, and here we have a, a tragic example of that as Nazareth as a town rejects Him. Please stand with me once again. I know you just sat down. Stand with me once again as we read the Word of God in respect for the Word of God today. Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 58. This is God's holy, inspired, infallible, sufficient, clear Word. And when Jesus had finished these parables, He went away from there. And coming to His hometown, He taught them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Please pray with me, Lord. We, we come before you. We come to a text that, that says much, that warns much. And I pray that by the power of your Spirit, I'd be able to just get across the main idea, whether short or long. I pray that the few pieces of meager, moldy bread that I've prepared this week would be divided and used among your people and that you'd feed your people um, through my efforts. Uh, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray you be with us. Help us to learn your word today. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. A couple months ago, maybe a month ago, we noticed with Charlotte, my oldest daughter, that uh, she had developed some like strange discoloration on her fingers. And they were like whiter than the rest of her body. And it was kind of strange. She had some rash going on in her face and her back. And we didn't know what was going on. And to be honest with you, we don't now know what was going on. But the best guess of our physician, our local pediatrician, was that this was a, a symptom of, of long COVID, right? And we all have heard stories like this, that COVID has spread throughout. That It's caused these effects that have been unforeseen and unknown to us in our bodies, right? I've known preachers that have lost their sense of taste, and it's been gone for six to nine months. No people that have had COVID rashes and all of these sorts of things. And it really struck me in thinking this morning that even a simple disease that only affects our bodies, such as COVID-19, it's very difficult. We don't know all the consequences. We don't know all the effects of COVID upon our body. And we don't even know how to treat it, really, in a very good way that's consistent. But the sin, the the iniquity, the, uh, the illness of the heart, which is sin, is so much more consequential. It has so many more effects on our lives. 
And we know very little how to deal with it in our own selves. But I really praise God that through His Word, He gives us everything that we need to reveal what sin does in our hearts, its different manifestations, and how we might kill it. Now, I think that we all believe that here today. And I think that today, as we go through this text, we have a particular inclination to unbelief that's manifested through just familiarity. I hope that makes sense to you. The title of this sermon that I have is The Danger of the Familiar. Now, the familiar is not a danger in and of itself, as if family and friends and hometowns are bad, but we are so sinful that we will grab a hold of anything and try to try to come up with an excuse not to believe. That's the warning, I think, of our passage, as we see that Jesus Christ, that his teaching is rejected in his own hometown because of familiarity. And this causes him, Christ, to reveal their misunderstanding and restrain his miracle-working ministry among their midst. Now, I think the purpose of this text is that Matthew shows us the hardness of man's heart to the gospel and warns us today not to continue in hardness of heart to it. Now, I hope to show you that today in two considerations. First, I want us to consider the surprising reaction of the people of Nazareth. And I I really think that as you read through this, it should be surprising to us to some degree. And then secondly, I want us to consider the surprising revelation that our Savior gives according to that reaction. Okay? So, let's consider in verses 53 through 57a, the, the, the biggest chunk of this text is the surprising reaction of the people of Nazareth. Now, when we read through this text, I think it's absolutely appropriate that the first thing that our mind usually focuses on is the rejection of Christ and then his refusal, or as Mark says, he could not do many miracles because of their unbelief. And we focus primarily on that. Now, that is the main point of our text. Jesus withdrawing his ministry-giving grace because of their rejection, their unbelief and hardness of heart. Now, I want us to focus first on how they reacted in what we might consider a positive way, at least at the start, and that is their astonishment. Notice with me that he taught in their synagogue at the end of verse 54 so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? This astonishment that they experience at the preaching of Jesus Christ, it's the heading of how they they first reacted. But this astonishment, it doesn't lead to a pious response. Astonishment doesn't lead to them worshiping Jesus Christ because of the wisdom and mighty works that he did. Rather, it leads and magnifies their rejection. That's what I want us to see, first and foremost, through astonishment. Now, the Greek word that is in play here with astonishment is really used in one other location, and it's in the book of Matthew. Um, One other time in the book of Matthew, I should say. And that's at the end of Matthew chapter 7. In verse 28, after Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were... Astonished. 
at his teaching. Notice why they were astonished. We'll get to this later. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so the people of Nazareth here, after they hear the preaching of Jesus Christ, they have the same reaction that the people that heard the parable, I'm sorry, the, the Sermon on the Mount had, that they were astonished. This word means to be struck out of oneself. Now, in English, we might say, I, I heard news of a cancer diagnosis, and I, I felt like I was bowled over by the news, right? I felt like I was, this news hit me like a truck, we might say. This is the same kind of language that is being used here. These people were astonished, so that a strong Greek word is used. They were struck out of themselves. But the question that we should ask, I believe, is what caused them to have such astonishment at the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now, as I considered that this week, it's obvious that as we consider this paragraph in and of itself, there's no answers given, right? We don't have the substance of what Jesus Christ was preaching on that day. But I will tell you that Jesus Christ came to deliver many different messages, but they all had one theme and one purpose. And that was to show that he in his own person and self was the Savior of mankind. That he is the gospel given to sinful men and women. What's so astonishing I propose to you today is that Jesus Christ preaching points to himself as the answer to humanity's problem. Now, people can be astonished for many reasons at hearing preaching, right? They can be astonished in a negative way. I can think of some preachers I won't mention by name that use vile and foul language from the pulpit and talking about their enemies. That can be an astonishing thing. It can be an astonishing thing for a good reason when somebody has great convincing power or great eloquence in the pulpit. The historical example that comes to my mind is George Whitfield, right? You might know the story that in Boston it was recorded that Whitfield in a field could preach to 20,000 men and they could hear his voice Not only was his voice powerful, but he was so convincing that Thomas Jefferson, who was an unbeliever, would leave his wallet at home every time Whitfield preached because he was tempted to give all his money to the orphans that Whitfield often supported. So people can be astonished for those physical kind of reasons. But again, Jesus Christ, what he claims about himself is what I think is most astonishing about him. We can just do a brief survey of what we've gone over in Matthew so far. Consider with me the claim that Jesus Christ made about himself in Matthew chapter 5 that he is the one who infallibly interprets the law of Moses. Infallibly. Where the prophets of old would say, thus saith the Lord... Jesus Christ said, you've heard it is said, but I say unto you. He claimed great authority to himself in doing that. Jesus Christ even claimed in Matthew chapter 9, or Matthew chapter 10, that all persecution, flip there with me, I hear pages turning, okay. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. Notice what Jesus says. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Notice the thing that Jesus Christ claims about himself there that we might skip over. That Jesus Christ says that all persecution that happens on behalf of God's people is for my name's sake. It's because of me in my person. 
We see in chapter 9, I'm going back and forth, I apologize, that Jesus not only claims authority to interpret the law, not only claims that all persecution happens because of his name, he claims the authority to forgive sins, doesn't he? Matthew chapter 9 and verses 5 through 7. Look at what is said there. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he arose and went home and then notice this. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jesus claimed great authority. But we can go beyond that. You can turn there if you'd like. I'm just going to read these. Jesus Christ is the one who claimed in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 that he is the one who gives rest to weary sinners who said, come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is the one who claimed of himself that he is greater than the temple in Matthew 12. Greater than the prophet Jonah. Greater than Solomon and even the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus was not just some bold and daring teacher who said unpopular things to the contrary. He claimed the entire cloth of true religion, true worship to God is bound up in Himself, in His person, in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now this is an astounding claim that we should be astounded at. And the people here were right to be astounded at it. Everything, the whole of Christianity is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king The gospel is astonishing, and I would propose to you that this is why they were astonished. Now, thinking about this, I I remember for years serving at the city mission, the local homeless shelter, preaching the gospel, and being so discouraged as a sinful man that there wasn't more reaction to the gospel, right? There seemed to be just apathy, And I remember one day, wrong or right, sinful or not, I remember probably angrily, maybe a holy anger, I'm not sure I would have the confidence to claim that, but anyway, saying to the men that I was preaching to that I just told you the best news that's ever happened in this world, and you're looking at me like I just described how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. There's just no reaction. But these people reacted in astonishment, didn't they? They were astonished what was Happening, And that might be temporarily encouraging to us. But what the people here show is that they are equivalent to that seed that fell on the rocky soil where for a very short period of time, moments, seconds, they showed signs of life, but it withered away when they thought about the reality of these things. Astonishment in the gospel is not enough. It's not enough to hear a good preacher and to be moved emotionally in a moment. Herod did that. We're going to see that. Herod heard the preaching of John the Baptist and he he did many wonderful things at it. We have to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ Himself. We must lean on Him for our whole life and salvation. These people did not do that. They were merely astonished. Merely astonished. The end of the Nazarene astonishment was not faith. In fact, their astonishment resulted in offense being taken at our Savior. Offense being taken at our Savior. Now, I would say the obvious here, when we ask, well, why did they take offense? And we should notice that strong language. 
They took offense at him. Jesus Christ had said in Matthew chapter 11, Blessed is he who does, is not offended by me. They took offense at him. It's not because he said unorthodox things. That's not why they took offense at him. It seems very clear from their own saying that where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works, right? They recognized that in Jesus was some, some piety, some level of wisdom in his preaching. And these being Jewish people didn't mean worldly wisdom, I don't think. <coughs> Excuse me. And if we have learned anything during the last two years of going through the book of Matthew, Jesus Christ is the one that can open up the Old Testament Scriptures and, and explain them in a way that is true and worthy. And when people try to come at him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to challenge him, he shows that he knows the Bible to a much greater degree than anybody else ever has. We could say, I hope with confidence, that our Savior consistently opens up the Scripture and wisely answers his opponents. So they're not offended because he's saying unorthodox Jewish things. But notice the strange thing that they say. They say, where did this man get his wisdom and his mighty works? And they continue, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Judas? And not all, are not all his sisters here with me? Now, this was the hardest part of the sermon to prepare this week because in my natural way of thinking, I would think that this would prove to the people that Jesus Christ's preaching and godliness was from God and not from himself, right? We know his brothers and sisters. We know he didn't go to some great university to learn these truths. We know he doesn't have some magnificent line of wise philosophical men that he's descended from where he has his great brain, right? This must be from God. But notice that they turn it into the exact opposite end. We know his father. He's the carpenter's son. Now, this Greek word tekton, right? It, it's traditionally seen as carpenter, and that's probably right, but it probably included making plows and farming implements as well, being a hand worker. He's a common guy, part of the community. He helps us plow our fields. He fixes our plows when they're broken. Where did he get this wisdom? And the implication is, he couldn't have got this wisdom, even though he has wisdom. We know his mother, isn't she called Mary? Mary is a very common name at the time. Not Lady Mary or Mother Mary, as some would call her today. She had a very common name. Isn't this Mary? Right? We, we know his brothers and his sisters, and I don't think that's supposed to be taken negatively, like his brothers and sisters are such profligates that he certainly can't be a godly man. It's just simply that we know him. He's familiar to us. He has no impressive training. Now, what strikes me so much about this logic and way of thinking is that the gospel is really bound up in the good news that Jesus Christ was familiar, right? He laid aside his glory and came down and took on himself the form of a servant coming in the likeness of men. He was despised and rejected for us, right? But these people in Nazareth, they fulfilled the prophecy given in Isaiah 53, don't they? That Jesus Christ was despised and rejected, and we say the curse of God's upon him for that. Instead of saying, he's despised and rejected for my sake. He's come to live a lowly life because of me. They've twisted the gospel. Their astonishment. They seek and they search for a way that they don't have to believe, and they find it in the familiarity of Jesus Christ 
to themselves. And it ends with them completely rejecting him. That's what the word offense means here. It's not just they had a little offense. They were offended by him. Not just in his words, not just some things he said. They took offense at him and who he said he was. And as we've already said, Jesus Christ has said to John the Baptist, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And this unbelief that we have, again, the, the Greek here is very helpful, I think, because it's not just doubt. It's no belief in the Greek. They had no belief. This reason for rejecting Christ, unfortunately, is total and final. But I want to bring this down to our level here today, okay? Because rejecting Jesus Christ because of familiarity, not paying attention to the gospel because it's familiar, is not just a sin that the Nazarenes perpetrated here. Unfortunately, this is a very common response. A very common response. Now, I want us to notice that when they say that do we not know his mother and father, that the word where is prominent. Where did this man get his wisdom and his mighty works? And this question actually comes up a number of times in Jesus Christ's life. The question of where did he get these things? I'd ask you to turn to the book of John, specifically in verses 8, or chapter 8, rather. Chapter 8 and 9. And then we're going to go back to chapter 6 and 7. But John chapter 8, again, what I'm trying to show is that rejecting Christ because of familiarity is a common, sinful response of mankind. Now, the question of where did Jesus come from, it usually has two angles, at least in my own thinking, trying to put these things together this week. Notice in John, John chapter 8, we have the first way that where Jesus comes from is a problem to the mind of the Jewish people. John chapter 8, notice what's said here. Just in verse 14, Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. Okay? So the problem in the Jewish mind, first and foremost, is they don't know where Jesus came from. And what this seems to mean is he has all of these miracles. We don't know where they come from. Are they from the devil or are they from God? Same thing is seen in John chapter 9. John chapter 9. And this is the trial of this man who has been born blind and healed by our Savior. And notice what the Pharisees say to him. We know that God has spoken to Moses in verse 29. But as for this man... We do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is amazing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he has opened my eyes. And again, I think that the, what's being said here, the Pharisees are saying, I don't know how he's able to do these works. It might be from the devil, but this man answers, he's opened my eyes. He's obviously from God. But the second issue of where has to do with familiarity. I hope I'm not confusing you today, but in John chapter 6, it's not, we don't know where he comes from, so he can't be the Messiah, but we do know where he comes from, and so he can't be the Messiah. John chapter 6, verses 41 through 42, this gets more to the heart of our text today. So the Jews grumbled about him. 
Because he said, notice, he makes a claim about himself. I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Right? He's familiar to us. He can't be the great Messiah and Savior of the world because we know him. We know him. And then chapter 7, we see the same thing. Chapter 7, verses 27 and 29. This is some of the people of Jerusalem. It says, But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one knows where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now these texts are hard for me to put together in my own puny mind, but I want us to realize here at the very bare minimum that it was a common response, not just for the Nazarenes, but for the Jewish people as a whole to use this kind of rationale. We know where Jesus comes from. He's a carpenter's son. We know his father and mother. Therefore, he can't come from God. He can't come from God. And I think that we see clearly that this familiarity and earthliness of Christ, it bred contempt and gave a convenient excuse for unbelief. Now, this was a microcosm of the Israelite rejection itself. We read in John 1.11, I believe it is, that Jesus Christ came to his own and his own received him not. Familiarity bred contempt. Now, I would tell us today that not only did the Nazarenes reject Jesus Christ because of unbelief, not only did the Jews in general reject Jesus Christ because of their familiarity with him, but Jesus Christ often now comes to us in very familiar ways, doesn't he? It's often not the unfamiliar, dramatic experience that somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And as I thought about you today, the congregation as a whole, and I asked the question, how did you come to know about Christ? I don't think any of us, as far as I know, came to Christ through a dream or a vision or a revelation. I don't know many people, in fact, that have even come to faith in Jesus Christ at a great revival. I would say that the vast majority of people in this room came to faith in Jesus Christ because of their family. Because their father and their mother believed in Christ. And they were taught the gospel from a very young age. What's more familiar than that? Others of you came to faith through the witness of a friend coming to you in a park and telling you about Jesus Christ. Or a co-worker sitting across the lunch table from you and telling you about Christ. Very familiar conversation and familiar ways. Some of you may have come to faith in Christ through church. But again, we have to be careful not to fall into the same way of thinking. I I know I've given a lot of illustrations about myself today, but when I was an unbeliever 15 years ago as a, a, a young, you know, hippie, The reason why I had such a hard time with Jesus Christ and the gospel was not because I thought the gospel was untrue. It's because I didn't like America. And so I thought, this is a a religion that is mostly in America, and so it can't be right. I'm just being honest with you. It's a terrible way of thinking. But that's what I thought. And we have to be 
We have to be cautious of that. Children today, growing up, hearing the gospel day in and day out, it can become so familiar to us that we think, well, it's just my parents, and we know how, how silly they are. This can't be true. The gospel comes in familiar ways. Be warned by the people of Nazareth not to reject the substance of the gospel because you grew up with it in a very familiar way. In fact, I would have us turn to 1 Corinthians to show that God often chooses the things that we consider foolish in the world. We as Americans, we love the dramatic, the experiential, the things that give us a lot of endorphins. But Jesus Christ has ordained and God has ordained the foolish things in the world that we would come to know Him. Verse 22, we know this text, I trust. It says, for the Jews demand signs. That's what they were demanding of Christ here to some degree. And the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling. That is, consider your salvation, your regeneration, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are Christianity has always been despised. We are foolish people. God saves the poorest, the most foolish of us to show His power. Don't let the familiarity of the church and of the gospel cause you to reject the substance of the gospel today. The Jews rejected Jesus in part because they could not grasp His common and low estate in this world. Their familiarity with Him, His family and His work was used as an excuse to reject his truth. Okay? It's simply what I think is being said in Matthew chapter 13 and verses 53 through 57a. But notice the surprising revelation of our Savior Jesus Christ in this text. After they say these things, excuse me. Notice Christ said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown, in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus reveals surprisingly here that their their way of rationalizing why they shouldn't believe in him, Jesus says that he actually fits the prophetic pattern here, right? That far from being something that you should reject me over, this is something that is actually shown throughout the scripture to be A pattern of life. But the thing that first strikes me here is the calmness of Jesus Christ in this, right? Now, if I'm preaching the gospel to somebody, as I did at the city mission, and they rejected it time after time, what's my natural response? I'm totally downtrodden, totally downcast. How is it possible that they rejected the preaching of the gospel? But Jesus is calm, He knows man and He knows man's heart. He knows this principle is true. That a prophet has honor, but not in his own hometown. This rejection does not surprise our Savior. But Jesus doesn't say this to his own heart. He doesn't say to himself, well, they rejected me, but it's because a prophet is often rejected in his own hometown. He says it to them. He says it to them to reveal their sinfulness. 
Now, as I thought about this, I think that we could come up with many Old Testament biblical examples where this is actually very true. Now, we might not have it explicitly said, but if we think of Noah, Adam with his, with, I'm sorry, Abel and Cain, we think of Noah preaching the gospel as he was building that boat, rejected by those in his hometown, wasn't he? What really stood out to me was Joseph in our text. His brothers hated him because he told them that he was going to be the means that God was going to save the physical lives of his people in his day, didn't he? And they rejected him because he was just their little brother. He was familiar to them. No way are we bowing down to you. Moses was rejected by the Jews after he tried to save them. Jeremiah 12.6, we read this. God speaking to Jeremiah, For even your brothers and the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Again, it's common. The common pattern of life. And in Matthew 23... We see this as well. (coughs) Matthew 23, verses 34 to 36. Christ says, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you have murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. History of the Christian church is men and women being saved and going to their families, going to their towns, and being rejected and killed because of their faith. Now, lastly today, Jesus not only gives this parable that reveals their sin, but He withdraws His miracle-working grace to reveal their sin. Notice, (coughs) excuse me, in verse 58, He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief. Now, as I said in Mark chapter 4, we have slightly different language. It's stronger that He could not do any mighty works except for heal a few sick folks as if that was small because of their unbelief. And some false teachers have taken that idea and said that God requires us to have faith in Him for Him to work through us. That God requires faith or else nothing can happen. You're not being healed because you haven't given God the the faith that He needs to work through you. Okay? Well, that is absolutely not what this text is talking about. First, we have unbelief here. Not just a little faith, but no faith being involved here. And I think as John Broadus says, as a general thing, Christ did not work His miracles on behalf of those who put no faith in Him. Religious benefit was impossible where they did not believe. Now, what John Broadus is trying to get across is very important. We've looked at the use of miracles as we've gone through the book of Matthew, right? And miracles were a supplement to the preaching ministry of Jesus Christ where he preached the truth and then he healed somebody to show and validate the truth that he just spoke, right? And it was often a condescension to build the faith of the people who received the miracles. But where there was no faith and pure rejection, Jesus is not working miracles in order to convince them that he's the Messiah. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They will not believe even if someone 
rises from the dead we see in Luke chapter 16. And I believe that Jesus would draw his miracle working ministry here as a warning to them. As a warning to them. The mere presence of the gospel, the mere presence of Jesus Christ is a grace unknown to the world, right? Now, we need to think about that, I think, a little bit. The presence of the gospel is grace. That God, in His fatherly care, chooses when and where the gospel goes throughout this world and who is saved by it. We see that in Acts chapter 16 where the Holy Spirit actually forbids the Apostle Paul to go to Bithynia and preach the gospel. Forbids the Apostle Paul to go into Asia to preach the gospel because God is the Lord of the harvest and He chooses where the gospel goes. Jesus Christ withdrawing His miracle working ministry from the people of Nazareth is a terrible sign of judgment to them. Without the gospel being present, souls will not be saved. We should see throughout the Old and New Testament the gospel leaving a particular area is judgment. We see that throughout the prophets that He's going to send away the prophet and the wise man There's no longer going to be the teaching ministry because they had rejected God. And that's what we see in this text. Jesus Christ did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And this ought to cause us to take a great warning, shouldn't it? Unbeliever, I would ask you to not deceive yourself. Set aside notions of the familiar. You must, if you're sitting here, child or adult, whoever you are, and you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, do not judge the Gospel by the familiarity of being around your parents. Judge the content of the Gospel. We might be able to say, well, my parents, they had a lot of foolish ideas about a lot of foolish things, and therefore I reject the Gospel. But we have to deal with the fact that Christ was a historical man who said historical things that made claims about Himself that no man can rightfully make. That in time and space history, this man was crucified and died on a tree. And then in history, he rose from the tomb. We have to deal with the substance of the Gospel, not just the means that God sent through it. If I were to judge the means by which God sent the Gospel through a man who now has rejected the Gospel, I would not be a Christian. We have to judge the Gospel by what it says not through whom it came. And this is so, this is so common for, for believers as well. I want us to not let familiarity rob us of the joy of the gospel. Right? And I say this, confessing my sin to you, and it's a terrible thing, and I'm ashamed, but as somebody that my, my job is to open the Bible and to write it down and to study it and to teach it week after week and month after month, it can become very familiar to me and it can lose some of its shock that it should have. I should be astonished day after day by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I should say with the hymn, how can it be that my Lord and my Savior died for me? And I know most of you, you're dedicated to church. You've devoted yourself to the apostles' teaching and prayer and breaking of bread and fellowship. It can become familiar. It can, lose its, it can lose its spice. But we ought not to let it rob us of familiarity. Uh, I remember my... At, this illustration might be a little out of place, but I think it's appropriate. As we think about the familiar and how easy it is for us to reject the familiar, 
Okay, I remember my dad when I was growing up in Delphus, Ohio, that my mom was really hounding him like microwaves were just out. And that, oh, it would be really nice to get a microwave. My dad fought my mom tooth and nail about, we're not getting a microwave. That's the stupidest thing that I can imagine. And then the neighbor, right, got a microwave. And the husband, the neighbor family, came over and told my dad how great the microwave was. And one conversation lasted like 30 seconds. He's like, you know what? We should really get a microwave, right? How often is that true in our Christian lives? We share with our children, we share with our congregation and our friends truths about the gospel to encourage them, and it falls on deaf ears. Why? Because we're familiar. But if it comes from another source, a TV preacher or personality or somebody else in the church, we hear it gladly. I think that this text should cause us to fight that natural sinful human impulse. That we should be judging the content and the substance of the gospel, not just the means, the familiar means by which God gives it. In conclusion today, I think that we should be considering the sinful response of the people of Nazareth, rejecting Jesus simply because he was familiar, and we should examine our own hearts in that. Are we not listening to the gospel, not giving proper function or ear to it, and are we not rejoicing in the gospel simply because it's familiar to us. If that's the case, I believe we need to be reacquainted with the great and unbelievable substance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right? Amen. Well, pray with me. Lord, we come before you.